0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. It's good to see intergenerational faces today, more, more than we normally do. Heard the uh, annual thank you dinner was really good last night. I didn't, didn't make it. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here, but I didn't make it out to the thank you dinner. I've been struggling with a sinus infection, so I have an extra microphone in case I start coughing into this one. I'll switch that out, because that can be annoying. Got my water. And for those of you who have, uh, haven't been with us, we are doing a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Job. And as we look at the book of Job and the story of Job, we're asking the question, what does it look like to become men and women who sustain our faith throughout our lifetime? Because we know that within that lifetime, we will see evil, injustice, grief, pain, and suffering, either ours or others. And those things are some of the most difficult challenges to our faith. We're seeking to become men and women who aren't shipwrecked by those things, but instead can navigate our way through the challenges and the difficulties, even Uh, growing in our faith and trust in God as we go. And we've been talking about this, this is the fifth week, and we've been saying that there's really no difficulty in the whole realm of human experience so challenging as the problem of undeserved suffering, or suffering at least that we can't fully explain. And Job is someone who is experiencing that sorrow over the loss of loved ones, tragic disaster, He's facing prolonged sickness, difficulty in his marriage, and his mind is weighed down and baffled with the weight of grief. He seems to be able to find little comfort. And for, for Job and for us, for many people who would say, we follow God, we follow Christ, this might actually be even harder because it seems that God is silent at times, or unresponsive, or apathetic, or indifferent to our plight. So that when we're going through hard things, we who know God might most of all expect God to answer in a way that we can clearly see. And at worst, we get to a place where we think, well, is God actually punishing me? Is God actually out to get me? This is, in essence, the argument that Job's three friends make to him in a cycle of three conversations. You know, what's the hardest conversation you've ever had with some of your friends? Well, Job has a very difficult conversation with his friends because what they end up telling him, what they end up saying about him is that, Job, the reason why you're suffering is because you must be secretly sinning. And even though Job maintains his innocence that he hasn't done anything egregiously wrong, his friends eventually seem to condemn him. And God seems silent to him. And last week we talked about loneliness. Ken preached on Job's loneliness because we've said that in suffering or in pain or in difficulty, uh, it, it often produces loneliness in us. It often causes us to feel very removed from others. And Job feels that way. We saw that uh, his family, his extensive re- extended relatives, his wife, even street children, we saw, don't want to pay attention to Job. No one is, is seeing him in his plight. And so eventually, Job has these three friends. They would showed up, and they said they came to comfort him, to sympathize with him, and they sat with him for a whole week and just cried with him. But then they start having a conversation, and eventually... Job says this in chapter 19, verse 21, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Job gets to a place in his conversation with friends, uh, maybe what the insurance companies would call an act of God, has happened to him. And he's experienced two natural disasters and two terrorist attacks, And yet, after a long conversation with his friends, he's just begging them for mercy because he feels they are giving him none. In that same chapter, earlier in verse 2 of chapter 19, he says, How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with your words? Now, today, we're looking at those words. We're looking at Job chapter 4 to 31. That's a lot. And some of you are probably thinking, this is going to be a lot of suffering right now. But I promise that we are not going to read every single verse. We're going to take some snapshots so we can understand the flow of the conversation. If we understand the pattern, we'll see why these words are so cutting to Job. And why we have to spend time here is because many times, you've, if you've ever heard the book of Job preached, you hear you know, one or two sermons, and it's often at the very beginning and the very end. But there are 30 plus, 38 chapters in the middle of these long conversations. And if we believe that God gave us the word of God for a reason, then these are not inconsequential. In fact, they're the vast meat of what is there in Job. These conversations that he has with his friends matter. Because as we've also been saying, God doesn't give us a tweet on suffering. He gives us a whole lot more. And so these four friends, and things we have to see is that Job's friends, they're going to get a bad rap here because they make some terrible blunders. They make some terrible mistakes. But what we have to see is that they are actually and truly Job's friends. They really do show up. This is a story based on real friendship and a deep commitment to one another with strong voices speaking what they actually believe. These are not people-pleasing friendships. These are not simple thumbs-up-like kind of friendships. These are people who have real complex friendship, and so even as they offer, uh, they offend one another even as they're seeking to help one another. This is how rich and real their relationship is. But what you see, as Job has already noted, we saw in chapter 19, the words that we speak to one another obviously make a tremendous impact. Job says the impact his friends are having on him is that their words torment him and break him into pieces. And when we stop to reflect on it, words are one of the primary resources we have and clearly one of the primary ways that we relate to one another. You know, words might be just as important as food, shelter, and water because we aren't here just to survive but to thrive and to do that as social beings. We need to speak to one another. And so we often uh, derive our sense of self from the words of others, right? I know some students who spend 40 minutes crafting a picture and editing it before they put it on social media. And if somebody or certain people don't like it or comment on it in certain ways, within a few minutes, they remove it. Even though they spent 40 minutes on it, they remove it after four minutes because they're not getting what they were looking for from that, the words, the affirmation, right? We derive our sense of self from the words of others. We know that words matter because in the news lately, we're hearing constantly about fake news, which is kind of ironic because we're hearing in the news about fake news, so you wonder, was that real news? It gets kind of (laughs) confusing. But we derive our sense of truth from the words of others, and we cannot function in a world where we don't know what is and what isn't. We derive our sense of truth from the words of others. We know that words matter because we've likely experienced a difficult day in which a kind friend or family member spoke words that gave us courage to keep going. And so we derive our sense of potential from the words of others. We also know things about words like verbal abuse. And we know that words can actually destroy relationships because we derive our sense of relational health from the words of others. And Job feels the negative side of all of those things. His sense of self, his sense of truth, his sense of potential and courage, his sense of relational health. Health is utterly attacked by his friends, even though they want to help. One of my favorite books from 2009 is by an English professor named Marilyn Chandler McIntyre, and she says that we have to steward language. It's as if it was a natural resource, And that words are ultimately bearers of truth and instruments of love. That's the ultimate goal of words. And she says this, Caring for language is a moral issue. Caring for one another is not entirely separable from caring for words. Words are entrusted to us as equipment for our life together. To help us survive, guide, and nourish one another. Seeking to make our conversation with each other life-giving. So this is why we're looking at these conversations that Job has because these conversations matter to the purposes of God because the words that are built up over these many chapters either point us towards the purposes of God or away from them. Our friendships, our relationships, what we actually say to each other about God and about our lives and about our pains and about our struggles will dramatically shape whether our sense of self, our sense of truth, our sense of courage, our sense of reality, our relational health are going in a good direction. Job says in chapter 21, verse 34, he eventually calls them out and says that their words are empty nothings. There's nothing left in your answers but falsehood. And yet the New Testament reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, twice it says that we are to speak the truth, and we are to speak the truth in love. Those things have to go together, love and truth. His friends believe they are helping Job's relationship with God, but in reality, what they say of God isn't right, and therefore they don't actually help Job. Our words about God and about the problems in our lives have a direct impact on whether we really rightly know God. That is what's largely happening in Job 4 to 31. You know, there was a when I was in college, one of my best friends, we came from uh, very different backgrounds, but we'd both recently been growing a lot in our faith. And he uh, I, came, I come from a Presbyterian background, a more conservative, Reformed theology, and he came from a very Pentecostal, charismatic theology, but we were best friends, and we spent tons of time together, we studied scripture together, we prayed together, and I went through a season where I had some seriously bad headaches, and we couldn't explain, no one knew why, and we uh, stayed up one night and prayed together, and he, he, wanted, uh, he was praying to have the gift of healing, and he said, I'd like to stay up and pray with you all through the night that God would bring healing. And so we did, and I was so grateful for his, his uh, efforts and his desire and his prayers. And in the morning when we woke back up and we, he asked, well, how are you doing? I said, well, I don't actually feel any different today, but I appreciate all of your prayers, and I think we can keep praying for this. And then he said, Uh, You know, we were pretty foolish, so we said some pretty hurtful things to each other in this conversation. And he said, well, if you just had more faith, you would be better. And I, kind of in my sharp going back at him, was like, well, if you were a better faith healer and had more faith, I would be better. (laughs) And we got into it, and we fought for a little bit, and we remained brothers in that, and we we worked through that. Uh, Both of us saying unhelpful things to each other. But I was really hurt by that for a bit because what he ended up saying, even though it's true that that we can pray for healing, and in the end, God did eventually bring some healing to those things, but it just wasn't right then. But what God did do was show me in that, that that my friend, in trying to be helpful to me, was actually unhelpful because in the end, he put healing on me. And the whole point of what we were praying about was that God is the healer. If it was up to me and my faith and I had to believe to a certain degree or certain level, then healing was actually about me being the healer. And so my friend, in his effort to help, actually didn't help me with my walk with God, but frustrated it. Even though I know that he was seeking my good, and in the end, there were some really good things that came out of that. There's three cycles of conversations that Job has with his friends that are a lot like that, actually. Here, we'll put up a chart to show you because we're not going to go through every piece of the conversation, but instead, we're going to see the important uh, flow that is there. And if you can see, there's three cycles, and there's a very common repetition that happens. Job lamented in Job 3. He cries out to God and prays about his pain. And then eventually, his friend Eliphaz says, I can't hold my tongue any longer. You need to stop complaining. But what he says is this so there's Eliphaz speaks, then Job, then Job gives a response, then Bildad is another one of his friends. Then Job speaks in response to him. Then Zophar, and then Job speaks in response to him. And you can see the pattern continues except in cycle three where Zophar and Job don't speak again. And it's literally because his friends have become so angry at Job that Zophar has nothing left to say. They believe Job is just utterly lost. He's so persistent in his own convictions, and he won't listen to them that they just decide, we have nothing else to say to you. So let's understand then what this cycle is about because it will help us understand relationship with God. In chapter 13, we see Job makes a summary statement about the way his friends are treating him. Here's what he says in verse 3 to 8 of chapter 13. Job says, But I would like to speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, friends... You whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? What's Job saying? Job is noticing that in any conversation where you have these disagreements about the way God works and the what's going on in your life, essentially you're having a court case. I would like to plead my case to God directly because you guys have set yourselves up as his lawyers and instead of taking me to God and kindly interacting with me in my pain and suffering, you're taking me to task with God is what he's saying. And this is what he says, two things. You are worthless physicians. You've misdiagnosed my situation. And then he says, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? You misrepresent God. So they've done two things that has made Job's life very difficult on top of his already difficult circumstances, is they've misdiagnosed him and his situation, and they've misrepresented God. And because Job's friends have misdiagnosed his situation and misrepresented God, Job's main suffering in Job 4 through 31 isn't his uh, bereavement from losing family members. It isn't his bankruptcy from having no more wealth. And it, it isn't even his bodily sickness, which all of those things are true. His main struggle now concerns his relationship with God because, as we'll see, his friends present him with this phantom God that is out to get him. And if this God is real and true, then Job has no hope. So let's ask two questions, because I think these questions affect us as well. What does suffering really say about our relationship with God? And then, what does it actually take to have a right relationship with God? Because Job's saying the way his friends are treating it is they've misdiagnosed and they've misrepresented, so their connections about relationship with God are incorrect. So here's what here's the conversations that he have, and here's the temptation that Job faces. It's to believe his friends because they are tempted in this situation to misdiagnose Job and his life. And this is what that looks like. What What do we mean? What are they misdiagnosing? They are letting Job's situation define his relationship with God. And what they're saying is, if your situation is bad, God is against you. If your situation is unpleasant, it's because God is angry at you. If your situation is not what you want, then it's because you and God are not on right terms. Here's what Eliphaz says back in chapter 4. The very beginning, this is how he starts the argument against Job. He says in verse 7 and 8, He's describing what I would call a default belief system. This is the default system of humanity. And he says this, Remember, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or when were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is what he says. Here's what he's saying. Remember what we know, Job. Trouble only comes to those who've caused trouble. Tragedy only happens to those who have sinned. The point is, you get what you deserve. This is how life works. And that means that we can judge, your character can be judged based on your circumstances. But boy, that has some pretty significant implications, doesn't it? What if you're poor? What if you get cancer? What if you get hit by a drunk driver? well, apparently your character is terrible and those things happened to you because you deserved it. That's essentially the beginning of the argument that Job's friends make to him. And this is the principle that Job's friends will relentlessly repeat through these three cycles of conversations. To them, this is true in all circumstances. And the reason why the book of Job is so difficult is because his friends are actually brilliant people. And the speeches they give are beautiful, actually. There's tons of truth within it. The thing that they do that isn't great is that they misapply the truth. It's not wrong that God can be angry at us. It's not wrong that we sin and bring consequences upon ourselves. It's not wrong that we act foolishly and then end up in a bad situation. But it's also not true that that's the only thing that is true. And that is where Job's friends get it very, very wrong. That God simply looks at your character and then adjusts your circumstances accordingly. Your character's bad, I give you worse circumstances. Your character's good, I make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Job's friends are misdiagnosing and misrepresenting God. Here's what they go on to say. Eliphaz says, Look, all of us are born into a troubled world. It's true that there's sin and everyone's affected by that. But in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He brings up this question. What does it really take for us to be right before God anyway? And he tells Job, look, here's the thing. We don't know, but... All the answers to that in one sense, but there's really one simple solution, and you should apply it all the time. Here's what this is, verse, chapter 5, verse 8. He keeps going. As for me, I would seek God. I would commit my cause to God. Why? Why would I do that? Because as he continues to describe through chapter 5, the poor and the broken can find hope in God. Even sinners who can accept God's correction can find hope too. But the way that that happens is simply repent. You must re- repent. And then... The reason to repent is so that you can have happy circumstances again. This is what he says in chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves or corrects. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but he heals. That's actually true. Except in this case, Job actually didn't do anything wrong, he didn't earn his way into a bad scenario. And so his friend is telling him, hey, if you would just be more humble, and you would go and say, hey, God, I really screwed up. Give me a better life again. Then, well, God will do it. And so in one sense, it's extremely uh, negative. It's a misdiagnosis of Job's situation and his character, because the book of Job began with this glowing review of Job's character, and God himself endorsed Job and said, this is my servant. He is truly the kind of man that I would like to see. But they also misrepresent God as if God can simply be bribed by our character. Want a better scenario? Worship harder, have better faith, uh, be a better person. God will improve your life, guaranteed. Look, Job, you are being disciplined by God. Accept it, submit to him, good things will return to you. And he says in chapter 5, verse 27, the end of his speech, Hear this, it's true and it's good for you. Submit to God, repent, your life will get better again, your situation will improve as your character improves. Now, Eliphaz is actually fairly eloquent and gentle, but his other friends get more and more angry at God as they apply this one truth to every single situation. For example, chapter 8, Bildad cruelly says to Job, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Here's the thing, Job, because Job lost all 10 of his children. If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. Do you see what he says there? Job, if your children sinned against him, well, this is why they're dead. I mean, just wildly harsh. God just delivered them over to what they deserved once again. But Job and all of his friends know, we saw this a couple weeks ago, Job was someone who routinely made sacrifices to God saying, God, we know that we are imperfect people. Would you accept our sacrifice and heal us from our wrong? So what it's doing is causing Job to have to question well, is that not actually bringing me to God? Does God not actually forgive us? How do I repent if that's what I've already been doing? And this is still what happened. Is there any correction for my wrongs? And Zophar is even worse. In chapter 11, verse 6, his friend Zophar says, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. These people literally just sat with Job for a week looking at the fact that he lost his house, his home, so his home, all of his children, all of his property, all of his wealth, and all of his bodily health. And now his friend who had wept with him for a week says, uh, actually, as I sit with you, I think you deserve worse, friend. Whoa. Look, does any of this make you a little queasy? Do you see that this is essentially the prosperity gospel or the therapeutic gospel? It's the default system of the world where our understanding of how we interact with God is cold and transactional religion. If you want your life to go well, be a good person. God will give it to you because he owes you because that's how he responds to good character. You always get what you deserve. But if you seek God's mercy by repenting, he will make your life better. But the thing is, his friends don't seem to see that they've fallen right into the same trap that Satan said back in chapter two, which is this. The only reason people worship God is because they want good things from God. And so they tell Job, hey, repent because God will make your life better. Who cares really about God? He's just a transactional bribery vending machine. And he'll give you what you want if you do what he wants. And I'm saying all this, And they say it really very directly, Uh, but they've gravely misdiagnosed him and misrepresented God because they have reduced life in this world to a one principle religion. If you are suffering, it's because you are sinning. All suffering is linked to personal sin. Now, this sounds extremely harsh, but the reality is that some of us struggle with misdiagnosing and misrepresenting too. Job feels judged by his friends because he's trying to express the pain of his loss and his confusion about where is God in my terrible situation. But his friends essentially tell him, hey, it's easy to fix. You should be cheerfully hopeful. God will make things better if you would just stop being such a jerk. You're only getting what you deserve. Turn back to God. He'll reward you. But this is what happens when you and I try to simply answer someone else's suffering by trying to fix it or trying to immediately defend God's goodness. It's true that God is good. But that doesn't mean that we need to become God's lawyers to our suffering friends in that moment. Because that's what Job's friends do to him. It'd be like saying, oh, your girlfriend broke up with you? That's okay, there's many other fish in the sea. Someone left you at the altar? Ah, He wasn't worth it anyway. You just learned you have cancer? Don't worry, God has a plan for your life. Some of those things are actually true but are they misapplied in their timing and their t- and the way that we do it? We want to encourage our friends. Let me give you a positive example though. I was, I have uh, shared this story a little before but I was going to get engaged to someone who I had been dating. This is multiple years ago and I had the ring. I was going to fly down to Florida where she lived and going to propose and, and she uh, broke up with me in an email a couple days before that. Didn't even call, didn't say anything. Had suddenly just gone cold. She'd been having some difficulties, but she suddenly just shut down, turned away. And then in the email, uh, kind of like a one principle thing, she kind of blamed me for a whole lot of stuff. And I'm certainly at fault for some of those things. But I was also glad to work on them. So I called, I tried to say, what, what can I help? Can I fix this? Can I work with you through this? Can we? She never responded. And I am so grateful that I had friends at that time who, knowing me, knows that I take a lot of responsibility for things. So I thought, I've just utterly destroyed this relationship. It's all my fault. I've done terrible things, and I've driven someone away. And yet they sat with me and said, sure, you've made some mistakes. But that's not all there is. That wasn't the only thing that happened in this relationship. And they wept with me, and they walked with me for six months as I was up and down, feeling a lot of depression and struggle, right? And they were the kind of friends who didn't take me to task with God and tell me that, well, you probably screwed up, and God probably hates you. (laughs) That's why this happened. I mean, no one says it like that exactly, but in the end, is that not how we feel when we are not careful with our words and our friends are in pain? And we try to do that. Even as we say true things about God, we actually can misapply the truth and we can misrepresent God. And that's what happens when we define life by our situation and we define our relationship with God by our logic. See, all these cycles of speeches that happen between Job and his friends end up with this. God is not there yet. He's not saying anything in the middle of it. He comes later. We're going to see that next week. We're going to see what happens when God enters the conversation. But essentially, these are some of the smartest people on earth who have done everything they can to reason their way through the pain of life, and what they've come up with is not a very helpful answer, an answer that Job in the end says makes me miserable. (laughs) You are asking me to chase this phantom God who seems to hate me. And I don't know what to do. So what does it take then to have a right relationship with God? Because something wild starts to happen in the middle of Job's difficult conversations with his friends. He actually starts to find hope. Here's what it says in chapter 16, verse 19 even though he's just been lamenting again all the pain in his life, he says, But even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. All throughout Job 16, he's been saying that, he's actually been saying, Look, I recognize he agrees with his friends. God is good. God is fair. God is also powerful. God is sovereign. God controls the world. So he does say, yes, the only way this could happen in my life is if God at least allowed it. God is in control. God even might have brought these things upon me because he doesn't know that God or that Satan is the one who's actually doing this against him. He never learns that. But though others uh, view Job's life as a sign of judgment against him, Job trusts that God will yet testify on his behalf. So again, back to the courtroom imagery, right? If this is a case that Job wants to plead in court, he's saying, in the end, my trust is this, God will be my lawyer, not you guys, not you friends. The way his friends have spoken to him throughout Job 16 and 17 we see leave Job feeling like, my only hope is death. In order to end this suffering, I have to die so that I can just no longer suffer. But Job starts to recognize this, that to long for death is to actually give up on hope. That maybe, just maybe, there's another way than this one principle default system religion of his friends. And so he says in chapter 17, he knows that he could die. And he says, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. But if I hope in Sheol, which is the place of the dead in Hebrew, if I hope in death as my house, if I make my my bed in darkness, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Something really strange is happening because Job is starting to see something new. The main reason he is suffering now, again, is not his bankruptcy, his bereavement, his bodily illnesses, but feeling this felt hostility from God. He thinks, he says multiple times, I feel like God is treating me like an enemy. But then he also starts to recognize in his suffering that there's really another enemy, and that enemy is death. And whenever he starts contemplating death, Job also starts wondering about hope. Is this really it? So I have to somehow fix my relationship with God. And if I can't, I'm just going to die in my suffering, and that's it. And so what Job starts to say throughout chapter 16 and 17 is, even if I die, I have a witness in heaven. I have someone who will testify in my court case that my friends have misdiagnosed my situation and misrepresented God. I cannot perfectly reason my way to understanding what God is doing in my life right now, but I have hope in this. God can. Here's what he says in chapter 19 this strong, clear conviction starts to arise. And Job, in his, the rest of his conversations, starts to change. He starts to be less, uh, in less of a struggle, even though he's still in pain. And he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I will see for myself and my eyes will behold, my heart will faint within me. Job demonstrates that though his friends have misdiagnosed and misrepresented, caused him great pain in the process, he's saying, I have complete trust in God right now. And he even says something wild, right? He says, even if my skin is destroyed, like I die and decay, then he says, I am convinced I will see God in the flesh. You're like, well, how are you going to see God in the flesh when you're dead and decayed? Job is expressing so much hope and trust in God that he's saying, Even if it happens after I die, I'm so convinced that the default system of the world, the things that we do based on what we see in our lives, is so wrong that if there's nothing else, we're just going to die. But if there is something else, it is now my only hope. Everything in my life has failed me or fallen apart. What else do I have but the hope that a good and powerful God can actually do something beyond what I can understand? And what Job is saying is, I trust that in the end, the Lord is my hope. The Lord will defend me against all injury and wrong, even after I'm dead. God, who seems to be persecuting me, is not my actual enemy. He is my Redeemer. That my only hope in life and death is that I do not belong, that I belong, body and soul, in life and death to God. And as the New Testament would say, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. The only hope overcoming suffering and eventually death is if you have a Savior who's greater than your own ability to reason or try to build your own logic on how to get back to God or back to a better life or back to a better circumstance. And in this, Job foreshadows Jesus. Because Jesus also came and was misdiagnosed. And he was misrepresented. They killed him saying he was blaspheming God, when in fact, he is God. Jesus comes and they say, Jesus comes and tells people that he is the great physician who will get the diagnosis right. And what he says is, yes, you are trapped in a world of sin and you do sin. But the world is more complex than that. There is, If there was no such thing as undeserved suffering, then Jesus couldn't have died in our place because all that it would mean is Jesus died and he wasn't actually God and he was a sinner just like everybody else. And therefore, we really have no hope. But if Jesus could actually take our place, if God could come and enter the world of suffering, which no one could have reasoned themselves to, even Job is like, well, I hope I see God in the flesh one day. I don't know what that means, but I hope it happens. Well, Jesus literally shows up in the flesh to show himself to us and to say, there really is another way. I've had a plan. The, the mystery you faced in your dark world cannot solve. And this is why the book of Job exists even for us today. It brings us to the logical end of human suffering and says, we will not find an answer. No matter how many improvements we bring to our lives, we yet still see another school shooting in Florida, right? Do you see this? Job has reached the limits of human reason for understanding suffering. He's reached the limits of human relationships in overcoming suffering, and he has lost all human joys because of suffering, His only hope is that God is greater than he ever knew and that God can save him from his troubles and the mystery of suffering. What we see in these cycles of conversations is a world without God's word revealed. It's a world of man's well-reasoned logic, but a world without God's well-timed wisdom. So here's what happens. How do you have a right relationship with God? We've seen this, and I I won't go through all these other verses because it would take a while, but in chapter 14, 16, 17, and 19, you see this buildup from Job where you see that he's saying, God is my, Jesus, eventually we come to know, this is where it gets fulfilled, Jesus. Jesus is my advocate. He will defend me against sin, condemnation, and Satan. God is, or Jesus is my hope. He's my hope beyond death. There's a number of verses in the New Testament that all link us who are knowing Jesus, to sharing in Jesus's resurrection, that there is actually life after death. That Jesus is my redeemer. He will guide me into God's kingdom and his inheritance. He will bring me into a better life, in fact, than I ever could have dreamed up for myself. And that Jesus is my wisdom. He will give me the assurance that he really knows how to govern the world. And so that even when I face the most trying difficulties, he is greater than those difficulties. And he doesn't give us simple answers within them, but he does tell us that we have a Savior who knows them. The whole New Testament says the whole point of this is so that we will have faith and hope in God, because there is nothing else to trust in. And when you do, it radically changes your life. I don't know if you've heard about this out at Michigan State University, uh, and they have a Olympic gymnastics program there and you may have heard the story of Dr. Larry Nasser who abused hundreds of young women who were gymnasts in the program. The woman who brought that to light, the woman who was the one who stepped forward first, her name was Rachel, her name is Rachel Den Hollander, and she's a Christian. And she did a, a, an interview recently And they asked her what it's been like for her to have been a Christian but to have had to face abuse. And she said, in the beginning, I wrestled with God's perspective on abuse. Where was he? Why didn't he do anything? Whether I was guilty by it. Was it my fault? I worked to get to a place where I could trust in his justice Though and call evil what it was, because I do believe that God is good and holy. But one of the areas where Christians don't seem to do well is acknowledging the devastation of the wound. We can tend to gloss over the devastation of any kind of suffering with Christian platitudes like God works all things together for good or God is sovereign. I believe those. Those are very good, glorious biblical truths. But when they are misapplied in a way that dampens the horror of evil, they ultimately dampen the goodness of God. Goodness and darkness exist as opposites. If we pretend the darkness isn't dark, it dampens the beauty of the light. And they asked her, well, what particular Bible verses or passages helped you understand your situation? And She said, one was from John chapter 6, where Jesus asked Peter, do you want to leave me too? And Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. And there was a point in my faith where I simply had to cling to the fact that though I did not understand all the answers, I did not have all the answers, I knew that God was good and he was love, And whatever else I didn't understand, it couldn't contradict that God was greater. But it wasn't because someone simply told me, hey, God's good. But I had to sit with God myself. And I began to learn from God how justice actually works. She's now a lawyer, and she defends the rights of the abused. The contrast between darkness and light is about God's justice, how to properly interpret God's sovereignty, and all the Bible verses that command us to give thanks or to reveal God's promises of goodness coming out of evil. When I learn to interpret those properly and apply them in the right way, I learn that they are good, glorious, and beautiful truths. Friends, this is the kind of people we become. When we overcome the misdiagnosis and the misrepresentation and we let God speak for himself and lead us even through the time of no answers and the mysteries of our sufferings to the mystery that is also Christ, that God would actually show up in the suffering in order to end it, that he has a plan, but the plan isn't simply to get us back to a nice life maybe right this moment, but for all eternity. And it's bigger than we can fathom or reason or logically deduce. And so, friends, we have this kind of God. Do you know him in the mystery? Because he will not treat your suffering tritely. But he will not forget justice.